Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 202 of Yoga Land. Today, my guest is Kristen Booker. Kristen is a freelance writer. She's written for Refinery29, Elle, Marie Claire, Self, Real Simple, you name it, she's written for them. She's also a yoga teacher based in Charleston, West Virginia. She recently wrote a piece for Well and Good that's called I'm a Black Yoga Instructor in Appalachia, talking about what it was like to move back to her hometown in West Virginia from New York to teach yoga. Well, to take care of her mother, but also to to teach yoga. And so I wanted to talk to her about her experience and we kind of cover it all. I really wanted to just hear her story from beginning to end of what it was like to grow up there where there were not a lot of other black kids. She lived all over the world and ended up ultimately in in New York City where you know, she enjoyed the exact opposite of just being one of many different kinds of people. And then what that's like to come full circle and move back to your hometown and to a place where that's still not, you know, highly diverse. So she was just a great person to talk to. She shared so much of herself, which I really appreciate. And I think you will too. And for those of us who are trying to educate ourselves about what it's like to be a black person in wellness spaces. This interview is so important and she just shares so many um, just really vivid details that can help us to understand, empathize, and hopefully keep pushing for change. So enjoy the interview with Kristen. Well, Kristen, thanks so much for being here. And I also just want to say thank you for reaching out to me. You DM'd me on Instagram a few months ago just to say like, hey, do you want to have a conversation? It was when the uprisings, you know, for George Floyd started happening. And I just thought it was such a kind outreach. And uh, we talked a little bit and got to know each other a little bit. And you kind of nudged me forward in the right direction in terms of like reaching out to people for this show to help educate my audience. So thank you. You're so welcome. I'm so glad. I mean, I was so happy that you were so open to the conversation and that, you know, I mean, I love this podcast. I love what you're trying to do. And I saw this, you know, you have such a beautiful platform and you have such great intention that, you know, I just seem natural to sort of reach out. And I mean, I'm so glad. I'm just really glad that everything worked out. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So you wrote a great essay for Well and Good recently about moving from New York back to West Virginia, where you grew up. And I thought we could start there. The, the focus of the interview is like being a yoga teacher, a black yoga teacher in New York and in mm-hmm. West Virginia and how things have changed. So I love to just kind of start at the beginning of your world, because you, you talked a little bit in the story about how West Virginia has changed. So from when, when you grew up there. So I'd love to know a little bit about kind of what it was like to grow up there and then what you've noticed since you've gone back. I was born and raised in Charleston, West Virginia. And, you know, growing up here was, it's such a beautiful place and it still is an incredibly beautiful place. The natural resources of West Virginia are stunning. I mean, it really is it's breathtaking. I mean, 
it's, it's so green, but, isn't it? it? Gosh, you know, yeah. the mountains, it's lush, it's green, mm-hmm. it's diverse in its mountains and streams, the river. I mean, it's really beautiful. For people who are into outdoor sports or hiking or anything, you know, it's one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen. You know, growing up here as a kid, you know, as a black kid, and I have to acknowledge something in advance, and this is something from a black perspective. I'm a black woman, but I'm a light-skinned black woman. So I feel like I have to call that out in advance because I have experiences as a black woman, as a woman of color, that are germane to all of our experience. But I do have to acknowledge that my darker-skinned sisters have a much different and Mm. sometimes harder story than Mm. mine. And so it's my job to call that out in advance because I can't say that these experiences are across the board. There are people who had it way easier than me. There are people who had it way harder. So Mm. it kind of, as having that color of skin for me sometimes means I fall into a bucket where I'm too dark to be, you know, white people see me and they sort of see me as I'm not, I'm an other, you know, that I'm not white and know that immediately. But, you know, so sometimes it's hard for me to navigate that space because they know that I'm black, but then sometimes from the black community space, I'm light skinned. So there's sometimes can be assumptions on that side as well. And so I sort of kind of grew up in this no man's land of, I didn't really I I tried to fit into either culture and it got to be a a bit complicated. You know, when I was growing up, racism was a bit more, it was subtle, but it was, it was always around. I remember when I was about 11 or 12, I got invited to a birthday party and it was outside. It was, you know, spring or summer or whatever. And I needed to use the bathroom and the woman, the girl whose birthday party it was told me that I couldn't go inside because her mother was afraid I was going to steal the silverware. And that's just like a small example of just the microaggressions. Like I could come to the party, but I wasn't allowed in the house. So immediately, like I said, well, can I use the phone? Cause I need to call my mom to come get me. And my mother showed up and was instantly like, appropriate but in this woman's face immediately because yeah. she was just like, we we have silverware why would we want to steal oh. your silverware this is so dumb but I did I grew up as a you know I grew up as a my mother's a single mother we were the first black family to move into our neighborhood my mom you know my mom was a receptionist when I was born she worked uh worked her way up went to school at night got a, multiple college degrees and basically we moved into a middle-class neighborhood. We were the first black family to move into our entire area. We were the first black family. You know, we moved to this house in December 20th of 1979. And, you know, it was interesting. Like we were just sort of the first black family and it was interesting to sort of be that pioneer in that, in that neighborhood where people weren't really sure how things were going to go. And then, you know, they found out that we're a family, like any other family. Mm-hmm. My mother is a single mother. And my mother worked really hard. I was a good student. It was interesting. It wasn't, you know, it was, it, but it took time because sure. they were a bit concerned, you know. Right. And this is late 70s, early 80s. And we're still like, I think, you know, other families of color moved into the area after us. But growing up, it was always 
you know, sometimes it was microaggressions, like the ones I've described. Sometimes it was a bit more overt. The N-word would come out sometimes. There were fights at school, you know. Mm. I just remember thinking to myself, like, I don't understand how you're holding something against me that is absolutely out of my control. Yeah. You know, the color of my skin has nothing to do with the content of my character. It has nothing to do, like, with my actions. Yeah. And I was always, you know, but I, I grew up with that same mentality, you know, the same lessons that most of my family had learned. And, you know, I was always taught that I had to be twice as good to be considered half as qualified. Mm-hmm. I had to do things better, sharper, faster, cleaner than anybody else, you know, to be considered half as good. Mm-hmm. And it's something that's always sort of stayed with me is that I have to be, be I, not that I have to be the best at what I do, you know, I have to work twice as hard to just get to right. be considered half as good, right? So, right. But yeah, I remember, you know, but we would travel and I remember leaving West Virginia and seeing places outside of West Virginia thinking to myself, like, the world seems like a very large place and I wanted to sort of experience what it would be like to be in other places and so I kind of I mean I knew I was going to go to college out of state Uh way early like I knew I was going to leave and it's not because of anything other than I just wanted to experience a larger world I wanted to see if there were places that were more diverse where I could maybe find my tribe it's good that you that you traveled and were able to see that I think that's huge. Yeah, it was a really, it was a big benefit. I think for people, I think that's important for everybody, particularly for people of color. I think we have to be able to see that the experience of being black in America is the experience of being black in America, but there are different opportunities to come together in different markets where we are, there's a larger, there's a large, you know, there's more of us. Mm-hmm. And not only that, but I think it was important to me to see what it was like to just be a human being in places where that were just incredibly diverse. Like I'd left here and moved to Charlotte, North Carolina to go to college. I went to Queens University of Charlotte. And then after school, I moved to, I mean, I lived, I've lived all over the country. I moved, I lived in Tampa, Jacksonville, DC, Boston, San Francisco, mm-hmm. and then New York for 14 years. And I knew that I wanted to experience a world that was bigger than the one that I grew up in. And I did. I mean, it was interesting, like just being one of one in a million and not really standing out Mm -hmm. was sort of comfortable for a while. Cause you know, the way I looked growing up, you know, I was, I sort of stuck out. Right. Really. Sometimes it's nice to just be one of of many you know totally. I saw many people who looked like me and I say I think I said this in the article too one of the things I also wanted to do was to expose myself to areas where people of color were engaged in pursuits that advanced them beyond things I had ever seen I had never seen you know black CEOs and prominent black artists you know out you know doctors attorneys architects, engineers, mathematicians, you know, and just it's seeing, like the whole, if you can see it, you can be it, you know, yeah, it's like, well, it is really important to be able to see, oh, okay, that's yeah. possible for me. My friend Alexis Wolfer is really fond of saying you cannot become what you cannot see. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and it's really important. And I saw 
that I could really kind of be ever, you know, be whatever I really wanted to be. And yeah. that's kind of what I did. Like I had two really successful careers. I was in finance. I was in HR for 15 years. And was that was in, in New York? All over the place. All over, okay. I started in Charlotte. Yeah. I had a progressive career in HR and uh, HR management and recruiting for years all over the country. And then in 2007, I was living in Charlotte and I, I had moved back there from New York and I was trying to figure out, you know, what I really wanted to do and how I really wanted to express myself. Like, you know, this is, we only have one life and I, I was really not thrilled to death with doing HR. And so I was thinking to myself, like, what have I always really wanted to do that I've never done? And I love writing and I love creativity and I'd always wanted to work in the fashion and beauty space. And so I found an opportunity to do some freelancing for a website. And then in 2007, uh, a couple months later, I sold all of my belongings and moved to New York with $300 in my wallet with a one-on-one-way ticket with wow. th That's three weeks on my friend's couch. Yeah. That's how I moved to San Francisco. Exactly. $300 one-way ticket. I had my backpack. Yes. It was a week after college graduation, so it was a little bit different, but um, then my friend from college drove out from Ohio and we met there and found an apartment. I sadly don't think that's as possible for kids to do anymore, you know, to move to no. the cities like that, but it's a terrifying and exciting experience. I'm so glad that someone else has had this experience because whenever I say that, people look at me like, you're serious. I'm like, no, I really did. Like I, $300. You do what you gotta do. Like if yeah. you really know that you want to try, I, you know, if you really know that you want to just push the boundaries and try to live somewhere different, you do what you gotta do. And especially well, when you're young, you do it, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, I was 37 when I did it. Oh, wow. Good for you. That's... Yeah, I was... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was 37 years old. Like, I mean, I, I still look back on that and think to myself how absolutely insane like, I must have been. But it worked out. I mean, because I'm, I'm just, I'm somebody that I think, I don't believe the unexamined life is worth living. I think if I had never done it, I would never know that I could have done it. And I did it. Yeah. You know, like, and it was the hardest thing I have, one of the hardest things I've ever done. But fact that I realized that I had to depend on myself that I had there was no there was no plan b mm -hmm. I didn't have a plan b and I made sure I didn't have a plan b because I just I wanted to go for it and really work hard at doing this and when I moved there like I had this piece of paper in my wallet that had all of these Mastheads of these different magazines on it, and I had cut them off of magazines, and I had them on a piece of paper, and I put it in my purse. And as I progressed through my career, I would draw a line through the masthead if I got published in that nice. publication. Yeah, nice. the first one, the first one to ever give me a chance in print was L. Nice, that's a yeah, good one. Mag <laughs> yeah, L Magazine was the first one to ever give me a chance, and then it went on from there. I've written for L, L Canada. Marie Claire, Women's Health, Self, RIP, Lucky Magazine. I've written for, gosh, I mean, I've been lucky enough to write for sites like Total Beauty, Refinery29, She Finds, Yahoo Beauty. So did you freelance the whole, for, for that portion of your career? Yeah, yeah. I did. 
That is really impressive. That is really, those are hard. That's hard to break in. It is hard. Yeah. That must've been fun when you started doing it. It really was. And it's interesting. Like it's because yoga has always been part of my life in addition to this, you know, these other pursuits and stuff. It hasn't always been, but you know, since about 1997, I mean, I've been really interested in yoga and yoga's sort of been a constant that allowed me to have sort of a home base of mind, body, and soul mm-hmm. while I was going and doing these other things. But yeah, I mean, I, I have always wanted to write and I, I believe that if you, if you have a dream and you really want to follow it, you should follow it and not let anything deter you regardless of what people will say. A hundred percent. I mean, yeah. yeah, you have to have some grit and perseverance. Let's talk about your yoga. So you said you started practicing around 19, 1997. How'd you discover yoga? You know, it's one of those things where I tell the story and I feel like I did not discover yoga I didn't wander into a studio or anything. I was a gym rat and I was into step aerobics and stuff. And I had gotten to a point where I injured myself doing all these really heavy, high impact cardio workouts. And I needed something a little more gentle. And I had been flipping through us weekly and saw something in the buzz, the buzzometer, I think about yoga DVDs and that, you know, Jennifer Aniston had been doing these things and I, Halle Berry was into yoga. I don't know why that was appealing to me. So I went to Target and picked up a couple of DVDs and they were the yoga zone DVDs by Alan Finger. Mm -hmm. I, I remember them specifically. There was a green cover and a purple cover and became obsessed with these DVDs, started doing yoga at the Y in Charlotte where I was living and then as I moved throughout the country, I got really into, like, every time I would go to a different place, I was looking for different studios. Like, I wanted to experience different styles of yoga. My first experience out of Charlotte was D.C., and then I moved to Boston, and then I was in San Francisco for a good amount of time. And the yoga out in San Francisco was really kind of what changed the game for me because I was able to get out of more of a gym yoga focus into the actual, the asana, the mantras, more of the historic and the more, the foundations, yeah, the principles of yoga. And it's eventually what drew me to wanting to teach. I'd wanted, I, I really wanted to start teaching. I got into it when I was in San Francisco back in 2002, 2003 and I'd been talking to one of the teachers at the studios there and he'd encouraged me to try a teacher training, but it took me years to actually have the guts to try it because I was terrified of standing up in front of a group of people. Yeah. So I yeah. still am. <laughs> yeah. It's, still it's good scary. that you got through that because I still am. <laughs> no, it's scary. I mean, every yeah. once in a while you'll sit, you'll stand there in front of a class of people and they'll just be staring, they're staring at you expectantly. And as you're talking, you're mentally judging yourself going, does this make sense? Did I say something? <laughs> you're judging their facial expressions and all they're waiting for is for you to start the class. Yeah. They're not judging you. They're just listening to you. you and know? meanwhile, you're having an out-of-body experience. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's how it is. Absolutely. I'm having a full-blown conversation with myself by myself <laughs> in my head while I'm speaking. It's, 
I have no idea. But yeah, I got into <laughs> yoga and then I wound up coming back to New York and really got into yoga when I moved back to New York. I had worked with Exhale Enterprises for a while and started going to Exhale and really started taking class from this amazing yogi named Stephanie Aris, who was awesome. And then I wound up finding different teachers throughout New York. My yogis are, you know, Stephanie's one of my yogis. I wound up taking class from Mary Dana Abbott, who I think is amazing. And inevitably found my way to Laughing Lotus and started taking class from Felipe Gonzalez and Deb Langley and Allie Kramer. And that's inevitably where I really, you know, and then I took Dana, Dana Trixie Flynn's class. And then inevitably that's what sold me on teacher training. And then I just completed teacher training last year. Really? Oh. Yeah, I've only I've only been teaching for I, I know it's really strange because I've had um, I'm grateful that people have said you know it feels like you've been teaching for four or five years but uh-huh. I've been teaching for a year so. yeah and now you're teaching in the midst of the pandemic which yeah it's I mean even for, I don't know how it feels for you but for even for my husband who's been teaching a long time it's it's a challenge it, it's just so different it really is I'm interested from Jason's perspective like you know, from the opportunity to, to translate what we do in the classroom yeah. to online is really, it's an interesting challenge, you know, but I think it's an interesting challenge because the hard part for me is that I was always taught to really work very hard to make sure that in, that you you focus on injury prevention. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to make sure that you're doing it safely, that your form is correct, that, you know, you're not, you know, that your hips are neutral when they're supposed to be, that they're, you know, open, closed, neutral. Like, I remember all of these things and I'm, I can't really see people online when I'm teaching, which makes it hard. But I also like the opportunity that yoga online offers, which is that it's open to anyone, anywhere of any ability with an internet access. Totally. Yeah. yeah, and, and people who are new or uncomfortable don't have to turn the video on, which I think can be really appealing for people. I do this sort of hybrid, flowy exercise class with Steph Snyder. She does it on Zoom through, through her, her studio. And I never, I never turn the camera on for that one because I am just like huffing and puffing and looking crazy. And it's yep. really nice to be able to go full out and, and not have the camera on. So I, I, I think there is, there is that. And I'm sure maybe Jason and I should do an episode about this because I heard him talking to his teacher trainees yesterday about some of the, the upsides and the downsides. And I think for him, the biggest downside is just not being able to, to like be in the room with people, just missing his students and missing that yeah. energetic feedback. Like you're putting out so much energy and it's, it's not possible to really get it back because there's nobody there. So that is a big thing that he misses. But I did hear him say one advantage yesterday is that he is teaching inversions more because people have the wall space, right? Like in a studio, it's such a big deal to be like, okay, everybody go to the wall and then everybody rolls their eyes like they don't want to stop the flow and they've got to take their mat over and they have to share the space and blah, blah, blah. And at home, you know, it's just like, there's just one person who has to figure it out for themselves. And if they don't want to do it, they don't, they can just do down dog, but that he said that part has been fun for him. So yeah, upsides and and downsides, but I agree with him on the wall. Yeah. 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 I agree with him on the wall. Cause I teach, 
two studios here. One is the is Yoga Power, and the other one's called The Folded Leaf. I have most of my stuff on the schedule at Yoga Power, and I teach Yoga Nidra, and I also teach a Yin class. And Yin with your legs up the wall is a transformative experience. Totally. And the ability to do that at home, where no one is looking where you can just flop down on the floor and throw your legs up the wall and listen for instruction has, is such a great opportunity. I'm a, I agree with him completely. I think the opportunity to do that at home and plus, excuse me, if you're working on inversions or even arm balances, like, you know, crow can be the bane of most people's existence. If you're working on it at home where no one can see you. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it allows you the opportunity to perfect the pose and get over that fear of altitude that you have yep. yeah. yeah, without anybody looking. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I want to get back to you and your path. So you grew up in West Virginia. You moved all around. You got to see the world. You've had two successful careers. And it's been in the past year, right, that you moved back home to care, to care for some loved ones. and so. What do you bring back with you to that experience and, and how has West Virginia changed and how have you changed? You know, I moved back here uh, in July of last year because my mother is aging. I'm an only child. When you watch someone you love starting to have, you know, she's such a vibrant, energetic person. And I love my mother very much and to watch my mom start to she's not she doesn't have the mobility she used to she's she can't get up and down the stairs as much and you know and it's I realized that like my life I've had the opportunity to live all over the country I've traveled extensively and it didn't make sense for me to try to pull her into my life in New York which wasn't right. really, which wouldn't be much more accessible than where she is now I'm sure it'd be actually less so it made more sense for me to give up you know, my existence in New York. Cause I mean, I'm, I'm still a freelance writer. I still write. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, I can do that from anywhere. Right. So I just realized it was easier for me to come down. Plus I could teach, you know, one of the reasons I got certified in yoga Nidra was to work with people here in the recovery community because oh. the opioid addiction issues here, you know, addiction is a huge issue here and all over the country. It's not just West Virginia, but right, right, right. You know, we have a lot, we have a, a very serious problem here with addiction. And I got certified in yoga nidra specifically to work with people in addiction because the whole nature of addiction is you want to get out of yourself. And yoga nidra allows the body to go to sleep while the mind stays active and travels. And it's a way to get out of yourself without having to actually use a substance. You can just That's use, awesome. I never thought yeah. of it that way. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great substitute for trying to trip or get high or get wasted, yeah. right? Yeah. And I'm also somebody in recovery as well. I've been sober for eight and a half years. So congratulations. You know, thank you. So I yeah. realized like uh you know it's time for me to do some service. But I did. I moved back here and you know I, it was interesting because I I don't think I was even prepared for the transition of going from polyglot nature of hearing accents from all over the world and seeing people from every culture, every color who have learned because of the fact that there are, I think it's 8.5 million people in 11 square miles full of space, right? It's work is dense That's and crazy. everybody, yeah, there are millions like my neighborhood. I lived in, I lived in West Harlem 
And my neighborhood basically has more people in it. My old neighborhood, that section of, of Manhattan, has more people in it than the population of the state of West Virginia. The population of the state of West Virginia, I think, is 1.6 million. Wow. So just going from, first of all, the fact that my old neighborhood has just as many people in it as the population of the state mm-hmm. is one thing. Mm-hmm. But going from a place where people have learned to coexist very for, for a large degree just because of the fact that you're on top of each other, you kind of have to learn how to coexist. Mm-hmm. And just the absolute, you know, the incredible diverse nature of, of living in a city where, you know, you see every hue, every color, every, every gender identity, every sexual orientation, you know, everything and everyone learns to live together to coming back to a place where it's very traditional in its values. They don't like outsiders, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, I'm not saying anything. It's, that's a much more of a trait of Appalachia, but it's, you know, they like, you know, they like to, things have been done a certain way here for a really long time. And it's hard because as the planet, you know, as the world changes, not that the values are different, but some of the ways that they have to be expressed are different. And, you know, just coming back to a place where, you know, people of color are a minority, they're not widely heard, and people of color are not widely seen, especially when it comes to the the wellness space. Mm-hmm. Like, I think I said this in the piece, like, there are, I'm the only black teacher in my studio, in either of the studios where I teach, but... You know, there are two women of color who teach at the, at the studio that I work at predominantly, but there are only a handful of teachers of color for hundreds of miles. Like, and to not be able to see yourself the way I used to be able to see myself, to not be able to, to feel that feeling that I felt as a kid where to feel that you are misunderstood or that there is a mark against you for no other reason than you look different mm. is really hard. Mm-hmm. And I really, like, I had forgotten what that was like. And when I first got back here, it was incredibly hard to just remember that, oh, that's the way that people have always done things around here. You know, there's, and I've said it, you know, whenever you turn on the news here, or anywhere else, you know, the only, the first thing you see are stories where African Americans are portrayed as criminals and violent people and that were lazy or, you know, that were not, you know, that were lazy, that were, that somehow were less than. Mm. And it's frustrating because I think of all of the things that I had, all the things that I accomplished, all the things that I have done. And that could be erased if I got stopped. You know, nothing would matter if I were stopped by a cop somewhere and somebody misunderstood. Mm-hmm. You know, like me being stopped by the police for a regular traffic violation could be the end of my life, you know, anywhere in the United States. But, you know, specifically moving back here, I think I wasn't ready for, you know, it's a smaller town. I'm not used to, you know, I'm adjusting now, but like it was really hard to adjust to everybody knows everyone. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, and I grew up here, but I also, 
I also left. And so I left for 30 years and came back. And so everything, you know, everything had changed, but everything was different, you know, and it was, it was really hard to not revert back to being 18 Mm. and wanting to just escape it. Like once you see it, you know, I got, I, I, one of the weirder experiences I had was when you, like, I think I said this in the article about the student who showed up in my class who I don't think she knew I was, you know, my name was on the schedule, but she showed up for my class and was angry. I mean, immediately Mm. the minute she looked at me and you can always tell racism is a really obvious thing. It's even when it's subtle. I'm sure there's an, an energy to it. You know, yeah. I'm sure that like, uh, that's when you describe that, that's kind of what I thought about. It's like, it's when people not to sound, but like when people talk about vibes, like <laughs> it's a real thing. Like there is an energetic presence when that we put off, even if we don't say anything. Yeah. You can sense it. It's a, it's an, it has an energy all its own. It's, and I think, I think anybody for a color will tell you this, the hair stands up on the back of your neck when it, when it happens, you know, it immediately. You, it's a it's a physical sensation. It's like it's an electrical charge. You know it the minute you feel it. You don't mm-hmm. even have to see it. You can sense it. And I mean, to have this person in a class and trying to teach. And I mean, I've been teaching. I think it's six like six months at that point. And I could see it. And I could. She wouldn't make eye contact with me. And I knew it the minute. You know, I knew. Like I saw her face because she just wouldn't look up. And she every time she would look up when I would call out a different posture, she would just like, she was seething by the time I moved over to the, that side of the room to, to ask her to adjust her stance because her hips were, you know, going to damage her hips trying to flip into these, you know, to go from warrior one, she was trying to go from warrior one to warrior two. And I was trying to explain the positioning of the hips from neutral to open. And she just looked up at me and it was just this fiery anger this rage, that seething rage of how dare you even talk to me. Mm-hmm. And I just kept it moving. Like I didn't address it at the time because I'm in the middle of teaching. Like it's already hard enough to try to keep, you know, the sequence prop, you know, sequence together and you've got, you know, 15 people in the room, you know, but to have to deal with somebody who, you know, was just very, just violently angry that you even spoke to them in yeah. your own class is weird. Awful. It's, it, <laughs> it's not it weird. Is. It's awful. And it is. Yeah. And it's like, I was, one of the things that has come through to me in a way that I just was not aware of before is, is Faith Hunter was on the show a couple episodes ago and um, she did this Instagram video. And at one point she talked about how she's been made to feel ashamed for being black. And that was like, yeah a really revelatory moment for me because it's like, I look at Faith, she's so successful. She's so smart. She's so beautiful. She's so well-spoken. Like that's not something I would ever associate, right? With her inner experience. And that's awful. And that, that to me, like that is what I'm seeing so much of is like racism and whether it's overt or covert, it's a very shaming, the like foundation of it is incredibly shaming. And that's just not something that is healthy for anybody. It's just not. <laughs> well, and I appreciate that. I think that you just articulated something that I was sort of struggling with how to describe. But 
there is a general idea that that is imparted to you when you have an experience with racism and it's pervasive throughout your life it's that not only should you not exist but the only reason you exist is because we let you exist (sighs) and that is one of the most frustrating things about racism whether people who are and i think this is i think this is this also goes it doesn't matter if it's overt racism or it's people who don't understand the concept of white privilege mm-hmm. that tenet of you know the existence of black people in this country is only because white people let us live here or let us exist is such a frustrating thing because one the history, the 400 year history of African Americans and black people in the United States is fraught with its, you have to call it what it is, kidnapping, rape, violence, murder, torture, enslavement. Stripping of identity, like completely stripping stripping of name, name identity, family identity. I mean, yeah. Yeah. The constant fight and it still exists to this day. We have systems that exist that, you know, that keep it in perpetuity until they are smashed. We have gerrymandering, redlining, implicit bias. We still have so many systems and, and, and it's, it happens everywhere. And it's not just here in West Virginia, it's everywhere, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You know, my, and I think that was one of the things I wanted to impart in the article my experience here in West Virginia when it comes to racism and it comes to prejudice is not specific to the state of West Virginia. It doesn't mean that West Virginia is a racist place. And I do want to make sure that this is very clear. It is not because I live in West Virginia. It is because I live in America that this is happening. I think that the, the shift is that I live in a smaller market where it is imparted on me in a different way than it would be other places. But, you know, when, when melanin is unwelcome, it is unwelcome. Mm. It doesn't really matter where I am. Uh, I spoke to Jennifer Hutton. Sorry, I was thinking of her Instagram name, which is J-pop for one of my podcasts. She's a physical therapist. And I, she described something that, again, like in my privilege, I've never experienced or had to think about, which is that sometimes she's a pediatric PT. And sometimes when she meets the family for the first time, she's about to have the appointment with the child and the parents come into the room. And when they see that she's black, she can tell that they're a little disappointed. And like her take on that is that she just, I'm going to paraphrase here, but basically she said, my attitude is, don't worry, by the end of the session, they're going to love me, right? Like, it's what you were saying before, which is like, you have to work twice as hard to overcome something that it has nothing to do with your training, your experience, your ability to work with the child, none of that. You have to overcome that hurdle to get the parent's trust for you to care for their child. And I just wonder if you feel that at all when you, and I I don't mean just in West Virginia, as you said, this is not, this is not a location specific problem, unfortunately. I wonder if you have felt that when you've gone in to teach classes. I have actually. Yeah. I think, well, the, the, the immediate thing, I mean, I, I have naturally curly hair and I mean, my hair is tight curls. Like I have Afro curly hair, right? So 
my immediate appearance, you immediately know that I'm different, right? I mean, but I think, yeah, I think there's an immediate, with some people, you know, it's not everyone, but with some people, I think there are layers to it here specifically. One is that I'm a brown woman teaching yoga, which is one thing. The next thing is that I am new. If I'm, if I'm new to you as a teacher, you obviously, you know, you don't know me, so you need to learn more about my, my, my teaching style and all this other stuff. But, you know, I feel like one of the things I think is really important is that it is really hard. The first thing that you, you see me is the color of my skin and the texture of my hair because of the fact that we have been fed a very steady diet of misinformation about people of color for years you have to overcome that implicit bias right before you can even get to the point of do i like this person as a teacher right so inevitably i have to overcome your experience with brown people when right. it comes to the media right. before you even get to is this person teaching a class that i like does this person have skills? You right. know, does this person, you know, do I have the skills to teach the class? Is this going to be a class that's going to be beneficial to you? Do you have, you know, am I going to be, is this going to be of service to you outside of, there can be a layer of mis, of misconception that you have to go through before you even get to the point right. where you realize that, no, I am actually qualified to teach this class. You have to cope with other people's conditioning. <laughs> Which I is do. crazy. All the time. <laughs> it's Listen, like, it, oh my God. And every person of color has to deal with everyone else's conditioning. That's, mm. that's the biggest, that's the biggest issue. Mm-hmm. You know, implicit, bi- implicit bias is all throughout so many systems, including mm. the wellness system. I, I want to talk about that. I want to talk yeah, about that. Like the wellness system also has implicit bias in it, but yeah, like it's, it's incredibly hard to have that as a pre-qualifier to me teaching. Now, I have to say, though, the longer I've been teaching and the, the majority of the students that I have here are incredibly open and amazing. And I've, I, you know, I said this in the piece, like I love the students that come yeah. to these classes. I do. I have some of the most amazing students, you know, and I think every teacher feels that way about their students. Yeah. They're, you love They're open. I do. Yeah. You know, I love them <laughs> to death. I mean, and to watch them evolve and grow and to grow with me. Cause I mean, I'm, again, I'm a newer teacher, you know, I mean, and the, I got certified, literally I got certified and moved. I got certified mm-hmm. in May of last year. I moved in July. I taught one class before I moved mm-hmm. and I have three different certifications that I was hoping to use. I'm certified in vinyasa, yoga, nidra and restorative. Right. So but like to show up in a completely different market where implicit bias is pervasive throughout and to know that not only was I an outsider because I left the state, but I'm an outsider because my perspective on everything is so different. I've lived in huge cities from all over the country. I've traveled really extensively. So I look at things a little differently. My perspective is not the perspective I would have had had I never left Appalachia. It's right, right, expanded. Right. 
Yeah, yeah. It's expanded. So my perspective is so much wider and I've lived in places that no place is utopic, but I've lived in places where diversity is just part of life. It's not yeah. an effort you have to make. It's right. not a lesson you have to have. It is just, it is part of being in a larger market. Right. And to go from that to a place where diversity is still considered an active topic where you have to make an effort to accept it and embrace it versus just understanding that the color of my skin has nothing to do with how I teach yoga or how I interact with you in a job or how it's part of who I am and it's part of my experience, but it's not the entirety of yeah. your experience with me. We're all humans. <laughs> like it's like, we are. Yeah, 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 yeah. I would just love to know your perspective on what needs to change in wellness culture. Like it's like a genuine question, you know, like because I don't experience things the same way, it's harder for me to see. Oh, <laughs> like what I do absolutely see is that there are not as many black people in classes or, or brown people or so, so like clearly, you know, something is missing in terms of like your experience of it. I would love to know that. And I would love to know like, if you've thought about what needs to happen and like what we can do to change things. I love that question. And thank you for asking. I would say that the first thing that I feel that is really important to mention is that we have to respect the fact that yoga was created by Brown people. That's the first thing we have to do. One of the things that I have a real hard time with in teaching is the whitewashing of the thousands year old practice of yoga where we won't call Vera Bedrassan A, B, you know, one, two, you know, we only call it by its English equivalent, you know, where we make up names or we erase the Sanskrit. We won't talk about mantras. We won't discuss the history, the yamas, the niyamas. We have to remember that brown people created this beautiful physical mind, body, spiritual connection that we have sort of adopted as a fitness practice here in the Western culture. It is so much bigger than that. And we have to be mindful that when we call out Bhujandasana, that we should call it what it is. We can use both names, but we have to make sure that we don't completely erase the beauty and the sacredness of the practice of yoga. I think mm -hmm. that's first thing. So as a brown person, I respect that I am also dancing in a space that was not created, that was created for the spiritual growth of all. But I also have to respect that I need to show it the respect that it deserves by using proper language and, and doing the best that I can to keep it as close as I possibly can to the original design of the practice of asana. Like I mm -hmm. have to be really, you know, I have to be respectful of the eight limbs of yoga. That's one thing that brown people created this. And I have to be mindful of the brown people who, you know, the beautiful individuals who created these beautiful, these beautiful movements and this beautiful language that we use to create, to connect the mind, the body and the spirit. 
I think the other thing is we have to understand is that you can't become what you can't see. I think that we have urban blights. We have entire markets where black people, brown people don't see themselves in wellness because they, there aren't yoga classes in these environments. We don't have teachers of color highlighted on Instagram and shiny magazines and they're not sought out as experts and we're not widely seen in the wellness space and we need to be because not only do we have incredible people like Nicole Cardoza, we have, you know, incredible experts, beautiful teachers, incredible women of color who work in nutrition and fitness and wellness and spirituality that need to be seen because we we enrich the space. Yeah. We make everything, we make the tapestry of wellness so much richer, so much more beautiful. And it completes the conversation if all of us are included. And I think a lot of the times we hold on to this idea that wellness is for thin, white, and Western. And it's yeah. not. It's wellness is for everybody, you know. So, and we, I bring that up because it's not because thin and white isn't beautiful and, and I'm sure I mean it is but it's just it's a western standard that's been held a, you know a western standard of beauty that's been held as the gold standard for so long and it makes it very hard for people of color or people who don't have that body that face that hair that those clothes that lifestyle they can't see themselves doing that practice and yeah. they need to understand that yoga is so much bigger than your, you know, your cute leggings and your hairstyle and your ability to do, you know, eight point, you know, Tidabhasana is not required for you to be able to do the practice of yoga. You yeah. really it becomes your own. You know, yeah. I, I think we have to widen the conversation. I think the only way that's really going to happen to be honest, Andrea, is that if white individuals who have, these avenues of conversation, such as, you know, our conversation about the podcast here, the only way that's ever really going to happen, as we've seen through the, the, the protest, is if white people get on board and start passing the mic. Yeah. Like, that's yeah. really the only way it's going to happen, I think. Yeah. You know, if white studio owners featured brown teachers and workshops with brown teachers and black and brown teachers and started giving an opportunity for black teachers to, you know, to teach more classes, to do more workshops. We need to train more African-Americans and people and, and black indigenous people of color to do yoga, to expose them to wellness, to offer these as careers and life paths. Yeah. I think we also have to be mindful of the fact that we need to bring this out into the markets where it's not widely seen. We have to go to urban areas and offer classes and we have to have tough conversations, yeah. you know, about why that doesn't exist there. Right. And I think that's where it starts. And I can imagine a world where once that has begun, how incredibly rich the tapestry of wellness will become once yeah. all of the threads, once all the colors are represented in that tapestry. Yeah, absolutely. I have felt over the past couple months, just as like we talk about, you know, uncovering our blind spots, et cetera, 
that I was complicit in being part of one of those shiny magazines who didn't feature enough black and brown people. And I don't want to make this about me, but it's definitely something I feel ashamed about. And I want to just like say that publicly and say that, you know, I guess it was an implicit bias. I think it was also just like not trying hard enough to like reach out and meet new people and, and yeah. And just being sort of like comfortable in where I was. And I don't know, I just kind of wanted to publicly acknowledge that because I feel like, you know, for a long time, Yoga Journal was part of the problem. And I, I know that people still have a problem with it. I think they're doing better. I think that, and my point in saying this is I think that the big, the, mm, might get myself in trouble for saying this, but whatever. The owners of the big shiny magazines are not necessarily going to let the changes happen. So it's the, the more independent publishing outlets and people standing up for themselves on social media that's, that's really going to affect the change. I agree. And I appreciate what you said. I think, you know, one of the things that has kept people who have benefited from implicit bias or have not really understood it very well is that most of the time change doesn't happen without consequences, right? So there were really never consequences to not considering brown people for the cover or doing a dual cover and not showing it properly, you know, and, you know, showing the Caucasian purses versus the brown person and, you know, it's, keeping the brown cover hidden. And, you know, I, there are plenty of instances where that happens and still happens in publishing in, in multiple in multiple industries where there really have never been perceived consequences of mm-hmm. what happens. And I think the thing that's happening now is that people are starting to see the pain it inflicts. Mm-hmm. And you start to feel like, oh, these actions cause actual harm. Mm-hmm. They're, not, they're not just, oh, well, we just didn't pick the brown model for the cover. It's little black girls growing up. Like one of the things that was really hard for me growing up is I didn't see myself. Yeah. You know, like I, I never saw myself. You know, I remember when Whitney Houston became a celebrity, it was the first time I think I had really seen somebody who really looked like me mm-hmm. and it was such a, a huge thing for me because you you know not that I wanted to be a singer but like you start to see you know I could do that you know mm-hmm. there's somebody like me made it you know and and I you can't become what you can't see we have to be able to show and amplify melanated voices mm-hmm. and I think what you're doing is amazing I I appreciate what you're saying. I think, you know, I I think there's a great path through that pain to progress. I think now that people understand that these actions are inaction Mm -hmm. when it comes to the featuring of of black and brown people, that it actually causes real harm. That showing Mm -hmm. all the only time you ever see black and brown people in the media for most markets, like especially here is on the news where we're being arrested or, you know, we're involved in a drug case or there's a mug shot up on the screen or the media plays a massive role in right. the mis the misconception of what it means to be black and brown in America. And we really have to, we really have to address it. Yeah. But it does, it starts with the smaller conversations and hopefully it will work its way to the bigger ones. Yeah, I agree. The interesting thing too is, I mean, just as an aside, like, you know, there was pressure on me to 
all of us to pick like a certain type of a person, right? And and that person didn't even represent me. <laughs> so there was a yeah. certain there was a certain amount of like self-loathing that it created that I sure. didn't even really realize until I left. And until people started to say on social media, like my body is a yoga body. And my, you know, Diane Bondi is like was the, the lead, led the charge on that and, and Melanie Klein. And I was like, oh yeah, you know, I've always felt like crap about my own body. having been in the yoga space for so long, this is really doesn't make sense. So it's just, it is just really interesting. Like the more you learn, the more you see how you're hurting yourself as well when you're not being inclusive. You just, yeah. I'm really glad you said that because we don't talk about the connection between color and body image as well. Like it took me, until really recently, I think this year, actually, it's been real recent, where I stopped trying to force my body to become a shape that it is not naturally designed to be. I am an, I am, you know, I am an hourglass shaped woman with very curly hair and rounded features. And I have fought my entire life to try to starve, exercise, punish myself into a body shape Mm -hmm. that I see on Instagram or, you know, that, you know, traditionally from magazines and stuff. And, you know, it was interesting being part of the fashion and beauty industry as a writer for so long. One of the things that, that I eventually had to step back from it just for a little bit was because I realized like I am, I am in a machine that continues to perpetuate this idea that there is only really one real standard of beauty. And the thing that nobody tells you, and this is why it's hard, you know, to break through the noise because it doesn't sell product is that you are your own standard of beauty. Hmm. You have to be the one who looks at yourself in the mirror and looks at your body and looks at the soft parts of yourself that you wish were hard and the hard parts you wish you were soft and the part, you know, I don't know. Everybody who has curly hair wants straight hair. People who have totally. straight hair want curly hair. Like, you know what I mean? Like, because we always want what we can't have yeah. and, and that's great. Yeah. But like, but growing up, I remember like the pressure of relaxing my hair and straightening my hair and being thin. And I'm, I have had issues with eating disorders my entire life. And once I started teaching, it occurred to me that my students see that and whatever I am, whatever's happening with me is coming to the mat with me. Mm-hmm. I can only teach from my practice. And I realized that I was going to continue to perpetuate that in my students if I didn't handle it on my own. Right. And I decided that at, I will show up in whatever body I'm in today. That's, because what a that's beautiful it. breakthrough. Like what a beautiful, important breakthrough. And I, I can't relate to that as a teacher, but I can relate to that as a mom. That is so You look at your child, you look at this person you're trying to teach and you think, I have to get my shit taken care of because yeah, I'm man. just going to put it right onto them. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, and I learned it from my mother and she learned it from her mother. Yeah. And, you know, like <laughs> we keep passing it down and that's the thing. Like I'm not a, I am not a mom, but I do have a platform where yeah. I have to stand in front of a group of people nine times, nine to 12 times a week and help guide them, help give them the tools to connect with themselves, mm-hmm. with, with themselves. But if I, if I pepper that with language about weight 
or, or your shape of your body, or you want better abs, or I, I don't ever say like, I don't bring body into this at all. It's not about your body. It's about your mind, body, higher self connection. That's Mm -hmm. yoga is the tools for you to just to uncover what is necessary for you to go further on your path. It's a set of tools that, you know, only you can use. And for me to try to bring my own, my own bias about, you know, the bias that I learned about the way I'm supposed to look, I had to let that go. Cause I, you know, not only am I not thin, I'm not white and I don't look like an ad for one of the major labels of clothing. So but I have a good heart. Yeah. And you're a beautiful person. I mean, here's, this is the thing that's so interesting. You know, it's like all this pressure that we feel, all this pressure that's, that surrounds us, all the imagery that surrounds us constantly. And yet what makes a beautiful person? I I think about this all the time. Like when you're friends with someone and they're telling you a story and like, their eyes are lighting up and they're describing whatever the story is. Like you think they're so beautiful because they are, they're just being themselves. And so anybody who can come into a yoga room as a teacher and like stand in themselves and be settled in themselves is just setting a really important example. One of the craziest experiences I've had here as a person and as a teacher is that I met, I'm in a relationship. I met this really amazing person. And I think he's probably the most significant relationship I've ever had. And he loves me exactly as I am with the curly hair. He's white, you know, and he loves me exactly as I am in any space. And I realized really quickly when we first started dating that if I didn't see what he saw in myself, not because he saw it, but because I saw it. Yes. I was not only gonna I was not only going to lose this relationship, but that I could potentially keep continue to destroy my life because of systems of oppression that people had set off in me from when I was a little girl. Like mm-hmm. I could either break those chains or I could continue to keep them. And I decided that, you know, I was like, listen, I the body, you know, like there's that joke, I think, or not joke, but the the conversation about like how do you get a beach body or how do you get a bikini body? You put on a bikini. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's it. Like beach is going to get whatever body I get it. You know? <laughs> so like, you know, when I come to the mat, I come to the mat as a teacher and as a student in the body that I am in today, that body will continue to change. I'm old. I'm getting older every day. It's a different experience. Yeah. And if I am not okay with brown skin and my curly hair and my really loud laugh, and I'm rounded and curvy, and I have learned that my presence in my class is, I work really hard to teach, and I work really hard to bring something to the experience, but I also realize that, like, I am enough whether if, you know, if that's, if tomorrow was the last class I ever taught, I gave it everything I had, but I'm enough. The body I'm in is enough. The, the effort that I make is enough. I no longer think I have to work twice as hard to be considered half as good. What I do is enough. Me being, you know, I work hard. I, I am enough as mm-hmm. I am in that's, the shape I'm in. 
Again, so good. I think that for a really long time, well, maybe it still happens. There's this aspirational aspect to yoga and it sometimes can make students feel like if only they could do X, they would be enough. If only they could teach like that, they would be enough. And so again, like you imparting that just internally will have an effect on people, really important effect on people. Thanks. Well, I mean, I think we talk about yoga being, you know, we, it's, we see students beat themselves up all the time over not being able to do like, listen, I still struggle with crow. I, I love Ekapada Kundanyasana. I, I love it. But like, I also, I struggle with crow. I, I still do. It's not my favorite thing. And I see students st- struggle with it and they're like, you know, I just didn't nail it or I fell down or mm-hmm. hit my face or whatever. I mean, but that's part of, you know, it's like being a baby learning how to walk. You're going to fall. And I keep trying to explain, like, that's why yoga is called a practice, not a perfect, yeah. you know, yeah. it's not called a yoga perfect, it's called a yoga practice. Like yeah. even people who are, you know, very experienced yogis fall. Like, oh yeah. Yeah. We fall. Yeah. I mean, I've been taking yoga since 1997. I fall all the time. Like yeah. sometimes you would wonder if I had, if I had new feet, like I, we have to show up the way we are. And it's, it, one of the, you had asked me about the difference in moving back here versus living in New York. And there is one thing I got distracted because cat walked in, but one of the things that I wanted to say that is really important to me, I guess, is that the thing that was the most surprising to me wasn't that this place was different. It's that I was, Hmm. you know, that my experience of having been black and brown in America in multiple markets and having been exposed to so many different cultures and people from all over the world made me a different person. And Mm -hmm. it's not this place's responsibility to make me different as much as it's my opportunity to come here and add value, no matter how hard it may be, no matter how complicated it may be to try to have a conversation as someone who has outside experience to a place that doesn't necessarily immediately want it because that's just not how things are done here. But I have to try. Yeah. You know, I have to try. Yeah. If it were, you know, all of that experience, all of that traveling, all of those, all the places I've lived. And I mean, I've, I've been through some really tough stuff. I mean, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to come back here and teach and become part of the recovery community, I was homeless in New York for a while. Oh, wow. Gosh. Yeah. So like I, I was homeless for a bit, like, you know, I did move there with 300 bucks in one suitcase, but it wasn't always easy. You know, I mean, I hit, I hit a point where I, I didn't have a place to live for nine months and wow. lived out of a suitcase and some trash bags. So like I, I slept on the subway a little bit. So I spent some time at women's shelter so like I know what that feels like yeah and so when it comes to you know coming back here and seeing people who are homeless who have issues with addiction who have experiences of being underserved underfed with a system working against them I don't necessarily know if I have all those experiences but I have enough of a world experience and some of them are direct where I can bring all of the things that I learned here to maybe help people understand that they aren't alone Mm. and that there are tools to elevate yourself from where you are to where you, where you don't even know you could be. Mm -hmm. I think that's part of the reason I had to come back here. And if there's anything that we, that I wish we could say to 
people of color everywhere is that you are not alone. Your story is important, that your life is important, that you are enough, and that there are a lot of us that are trying to come to the table everywhere, anywhere to start the conversations so that the systems that have kept you from acknowledging the absolute power of who you are and what you're capable of doing, the systems that have been created to make sure you never see that have to be dismantled so that you know that your birthright is to rise to the level that you've been destined to. That's mm-hmm. our, my job here is to use every tool at my disposal to make sure that message makes it through. That's mm-hmm. why I'm here. And if everybody in smart markets, small and large, could come to every child of color, every adult of color, who is struggling to see that in themselves or in the system. We have to make it okay for the next generation to never suffer and never understand. Like I would love it in, in the next generation, if racism is some part of a, of a history book where people don't even understand why we did it and where it came from. Mm. Like we like, you know, we don't draw and quarter people anymore either. Do you know right, what I mean? Right, like right. we don't draw and quarter people. We look at that and go, that's so, arcane and inhumane why would we do something like that i really hope at some point racism is part of that history when we look at that and think that was absolutely barbaric why would we do such a thing yeah so yeah that's that's why i'm here yeah so you're going to keep teaching on zoom and what else is coming down the pike for you what else are you working on well i'm teaching in person and online right now west virginia still has uh we aren't, our gyms aren't closed right now. So I'm still teaching at yoga power. I'm still teaching a folded leaf and all of the classes that I teach in person are also online, but I'm also launching something that I had always wanted to do, which is I went to school for, I have an art degree. Oh, wow. Yeah, I have an art degree. I, I mean, I went to school on an art scholarship and I've never oh. used it. And I've always been interested in illustration and I'm starting an illustration business. And I um, saw on Instagram that HarperCollins has put out a call for black writers to submit book proposals and they will help connect you with an agent. And wow. I have a, I have a 75 page book proposal that I put together for a book that encapsulates that idea that you can become anything that you want. And it sort of shares the stories of some of the things that I've been through and how you don't need anyone to give you permission to do the things that you want to do with your life. You're never too old to start. You're never too young to start. You're never like your current circumstances do not define your future that you yourself can give yourself permission to go do anything you need to do. It will require hard work. Some of it may be messy. You may run into incredible hardship, but that you yourself are the person you, you yourself are the hero that you're looking for. Mm. So I have this book proposal that I put together and hopefully I'll get to finish editing it and getting it over to that email address. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I, I love that you're starting an illustration business. I love illustration. Like I just, it's one of my favorite mediums. So excited to see what you do with that. And where can people find you? Where can people find out about your class? I am on Instagram at I am Kristen Booker, K-R-I-S-T-I-N-B-O-O-K-E-R. 
I'm on Facebook at Kristen Booker. Uh, I have a Facebook page and I'm working on getting a website up. The reason the website isn't up yet is because I wanted to add the illustrations to it. And that takes a bit more time, but the illustrations are not only portraits, but they're also of women of color doing yoga and nice. Oh, that's so good. Yeah. I wanted to see black women in fashion illustrations and beauty illustrations and in wellness illustrations. And I didn't see enough of it. So I decided to create it. Yes. Oh, that's so good. That's so good. Thank you. Good luck with that. And thanks for being here. Yeah. So good to talk to you. (laughs) Good to talk to you too. Thank you. Thanks. so much for listening. I always appreciate when you share the podcast on social media and when you leave ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people to find the podcast and it also helps me to know what kind of content you're enjoying. If you have not already, I invite you to jump on our newsletter list. You can join it by going to our website. I'm about to make a few announcements about the few remaining teacher training intensives that Jason will be teaching this year. We've got the dates nailed down and the registrations will open soon. So I always post those types of announcements in the newsletter first, and I always feature our latest and greatest content. Okay, everyone, until next week, enjoy your practice. Enjoy your practice.